When I was in high school and our football team was on the offense, the cheerleaders would cry, go team, go. And when they were on the defense, the cheerleaders would call out, hold that line, hold that line. And so as we look into the Word of God this morning, we see Jude, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, calling to the church to hold that line. And so turn with me in your epistle, or in your Bibles, just before the book of Revelation to the little epistle of Jude. You know, a few years ago, John Piper sent out one of the most famous texts in the evangelical world in response to a big-time preacher named Rob Bell, who had been toying with the truth of the gospel for years and who finally and fully completely defected from the truth. And when he did that, John Piper simply tweeted out, Farewell, Rob Bell. Those three words lit up the evangelical world. And in some respects, the epistle of Jude is the equivalent of a New Testament tweet. It's short, it's colorful, and it's to the point. Because the church is facing tremendous challenges and tremendous obstacles, and Jude wants to alert the church to them, and he comes right to the point after talking about who he is in verses 1 and 2. He says in verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Heavenly Father, that your Holy Spirit would take the word and apply it powerfully to our hearts and minds and to our lives over these next few minutes. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you today in spirit and in truth, to sing your grace as we've already done, to lift up our petitions and concerns before you. And Father, I just very heavy on my heart today, the situation in the Ukraine. And so we pray for the Ukrainians, particularly the believers there. We pray, Lord, that your grace would prevail for them, that you might intervene in this tremendous crisis, that you might stay the hand of evil and war, and that you might renew peace there and bring peace to our culture, to our hearts, to our lives, in and through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. And I'm just going to set this here to the side. I've got this one here, and it'll help my sight lines just a little bit. Contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That has literally become the motto of global pastor training. There's no greater need for the church globally. There's no greater need for the church in the United States today than simply that the church be the church and that the church contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. 
If you look at that word contend in the Greek, it's derived from the English. Our English equivalent is agonize, agonismo. means to struggle, to travail. We have the English word to agonize. But to work hard toward a goal. And that's what Jude is saying. He wants the church to struggle, to work hard toward that which will be to the retention and perfection of the gospel in his day. And so, even though the tweet is clever, it's going to take a lot more than a clever tweet, farewell, Rob Bell, to maintain the purity and peace of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ very often and in a great many circumstances. That expression, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, has literally become the watchword of our ministry. The faith once for all delivered to the saints is not merely about the belief of an individual believer or of a body of believers, but it is several other things much more powerful than that. It's first of all the, the, a, a way to express a worldview. When Jude says that he wants the church to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, he has first of all, I think, in mind the whole Judeo-Christian worldview, the biblical, if you will, the biblical worldview of how things are as they're contained in the Word of God. I shared my testimony with some of your leadership last night and shared that one of the most profound things that happened to me as a college student was that the philosophy professors were teaching and I was listening and believing that truth is relative, that there are no absolutes, and I increasingly felt that I was a moving particle in an ever-moving stream of particles and that there was nothing fixed and nothing stable. And then I found Christ the night that my wife led me to the Lord Jesus. I prayed the prayer in the back of the old Campus Crusade booklet, and it literally changed my life. I knew that I had, among other things, found the truth, the pole star of reality around which I could then order not only myself, but everything else that was going on. And so Jude wants to un- his, the church to understand and to be reminded that when they came to Jesus, they came to the centrality of all truth that makes sense out of everything else. He orders it all. And he wants to remind them of that. Secondly, the faith once for all delivered for the saints is the repository of truth set forth in a series of doctrines. God's elective purpose from eternity past, the person and work of the Lord Jesus, his sinless nature, the union of the divine and the human uniquely in his person, his the spilling of his blood on the cross as an atoning and acceptable sacrifice for our sin before a holy, just, righteous, and pure God who cannot abide any sin. And finally, the vindication of his resurrection from the dead. We can summarize those things in the five solas of the Reformation. We can summarize those things in the doctrines of grace. T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Any number of ways we can put these things together. Jude is urging the church to contend for those things. And so when we go to pastors, poor and under-equipped pastors with a high school education, a Bible and a sense of God's call, 
laboring among the poor. We're going to urge them to remember those very things and to contend for those very things, not for whatever it is they happen to see on, from the televangelist on TV the night before. May the Lord deliver us. Somebody say amen. amen. I'm serious, man. And third, the faith once for all delivered to the saints is constituted in a covenant, is it not? An agreement ratified in blood and in our case, ratified in the once for all. And you see, you see how important this phrase is. The faith, the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. And why once for all? Well, fundamentally, because it's founded in the blood of a new and everlasting covenant based on what? The once for all atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once for all, once for all, once for all. This faith is immutable. It's not going to change. It hasn't changed and will not change. It is timeless. It is once for all. I increasingly hear people saying in the 20th, you know, we need, a, we need a church relevant to the 21st century. No, we need a church true to the timeless gospel of Jesus Christ. If we have that church, it will be relevant for the 21st century. Amen. That's, that's it. That's the point. And it's universal. It's relevant in every culture. Somebody said to me, uh, do you know Swahili, John? Why are you in East Africa? No, I don't know Swahili. I don't know French, so we're in the DCR. They speak French there. I don't know French. I don't know Lugandan. They speak Lugandan in Uganda. I don't know that either. Well, 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 well John, what? apparently the Holy Spirit thinks it's enough that I know the faith once for all delivered to the saints and I can communicate that faith and strengthen that faith among his other servants and that's sufficient. I've got a guy who can speak Swahili. I've got a guy who can speak French. I've got all that I need when I have this. And by the way, when we go, we, we deliberately don't speak of, for instance, if I refer to the church here, I don't speak of the American church. <clears throat> I, I might be confused for Joel Osteen <laughs> and that I'm there to talk about living your best life now, to use the title of his best and most well-known book. Right? Well, how does that, just the title alone, how does that jive with the gospel as we know it? Are we going to live our best life now if you're in Christ? No. No, ain't going to happen. I don't care who says it and how often. And no, no, it's just that's not, that's not, that's not the, we struggle. Yeah, we have to contend with our own flesh. We have to contend with the opposition of the enemy. There's a day coming. Then we'll live our best life. Amen. Yeah, and I don't speak of the African church. We speak of the, church of, the Jesus, of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in America. We speak of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in Africa. We speak of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in Pakistan, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In order to distinguish that there's a once-for-all declaration of truth made to 
a lost and broken humanity to call all those who will to come out from among them and be separate and be God's holy people and to live for Him. That's the church. That's the church. And that church is present in the United States. It's present in North America. It's present in Africa. It's present in Asia. It's present everywhere. It may look different in a given culture, but it always stands apart from and distinguishes itself from every fallen culture, no matter where it is, including our own, certainly. And so why is it important? Why is Jude urging that the church contend, contend to agonize on behalf of, to struggle for the faith once for all delivered to saints and not just passively sit there and say, whoa, what a mess, man. Oh, what are we going to do now? Well, he says that in the very next verse, verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who prefer the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Interestingly, right before the service, your current senior pastor, Jonathan, and it's one of the delights of this weekend has been to get to know your senior pastor, Jonathan, and his wife, Elizabeth, a little bit, uh, and they're just a lovely couple and wonderful family, and what a great, I told him, he's got a great speaking voice, so you're tremendously blessed in that regard, and then your former senior pastor, now your associate pastor, uh, my brother in Christ, John Mabry, who I've known for many years, but I'd never met Carolyn. And so it's been a, a wonderful time getting to know uh, Catherine, getting to know her and, and spending time with her this weekend as well. And when we were coming in, the two pastors were discussing which door they would take on the way out so that they could be sure to greet as many of you as possible. Now, I mention this because... In over the last few years, Debbie and I have had occasion to visit churches from time to time. And when we visit churches, um, the phrase Jude uses here, that people have crept in unaware. Well, that's exactly how Debbie and I want to, when, when we are visiting someplace, we, we want to creep in unaware. You know, <laughs> sort of. And not, and not be noticed, you know what I mean? And then creep out. When I, when I was dating Debbie in college, I certainly snuck into First Presbyterian Church in Chattanooga the first time, uh, hoping just to hide behind the glow of her blonde hair and all of that. And, and I pretty, did, pretty much snuck in there until I opened my big trap and said something in the midst of the college student Bible study, which I won't get into now, but... You know, I, I just, I just, I didn't want anybody to know I was there. Well, Jude says there are people that creep in. And, you know, I, I crept into first prayers, but they rubbed off on me and I came to Christ. But these people that Jude is concerned about have crept in alongside of, that's sort of the expression that they've just sort of, you know, slunk in with the rest. But now they, in their lost condition, are rubbing off on the church. 
they're beginning to impact the church, and that's the problem. That's the problem. And they're now teaching and proclaiming things counter to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This is part of the mystery of lawlessness that Paul speaks of in 2 Thessalonians 2.7. And I just want to briefly trace that with you. If you go back in your minds with me to Genesis chapter 1, at the very end of the creation six days, after God has made man in his image and after his likeness and he's completed all his works, God looks upon all that he has made in verse 31 and says, And behold, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. good. Exactly. It was very good. And yet, and yet, we open Genesis chapter 3 a page later and suddenly, what do we find? There's a voice in the garden contradicting the word of the Creator. In the midst of this very good thing, evil has suddenly appeared. This is the mystery of lawlessness that will manifest itself again and again throughout the Scriptures. And so Jude 5, in his fifth verse of his little epistle, speaks of Moses in the Exodus. If you look in your Bible, you'll see it there. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, and this is an interesting expression, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, you recall that Paul says, and who was the rock that followed them? It was Christ. This is a Trinitarian affirmation, brothers and sisters, if there ever was one, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Of course, he's speaking of the Exodus under Moses, the great act of deliverance that formed the basis of the Old Covenant. God led his people through the Red Sea, dry shod, and destroyed the whole host of the pursuing Egyptian army when he allowed the waters to collapse back upon them. And yet, he he does this only to find in the midst of his holy and redeemed people, rabble-rousers, rebels, mumblers, grumblers, unbelievers of every kind that he ultimately has to purify from the midst of his people. So also Jesus, in the very process of establishing the new covenant in his earthly ministry, says in John chapter 6, verse 70, Did I not choose each of you the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And Paul in Ephesians, I'm sorry, in his epistle to Galatians, chapter 1, verse 6, says of the Galatian church, and I understand that you've been working your way through Acts, and so you've been studying recently here in the worship center in your sanctuary, this magnificent sanctuary, I love it, by the way. You've been studying the first missionary journey, Acts 14, 13, 14. And that's the Galatian church that he later writes to. And he formed them amidst tremendous personal conflict and struggle, uh, driven out of Pisidian Antioch, stoned and left for dead in Lystra, and on and on. Through much travail, much hardship, he gives birth to these churches. And later he writes this epistle to them. And he says to them in chapter 1, verse 6, I am astonished 
how quickly you have defected, in effect, from the faith, once for all delivered to you by me, for something other than and necessarily less than, and I fear for you, lest the grace of Christ be lost upon you. And so what we see is this is a perpetual uh, and continual condition of the Lord's people in the midst of a lost and broken world ever since the fall. And I, I want to take a moment and have you turn with me to the 24th chapter of Matthew and just be reminded again of what the Lord Jesus says about this very issue. Beginning at verse 4 of Matthew 24, and Jesus said, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And we're hearing that today, aren't we? The drumbeats are pounding. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and many have suffered that and are suffering it even this day, brothers and sisters. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets in that context will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. You see, the Lord Jesus simply affirming yet again the ongoing reality of what Paul describes as the mystery of lawlessness in the present age. And what is the need, the needed response of the people of God? To hold the line, to hold the line, to hold the line. Because in one sense, we're continually on defense. And yet at the same time, we are also the people of God armed with the word of God and the transforming, life-giving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to go, go, go. And so, as the Holy Spirit only could empower us to do, we, we're like an old football team playing both sides of the ball, except we're to do it simultaneously. We're to go, 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 and we're to hold that line, hold that line, hold that line, and contend once for all for the faith delivered to the saints. Amen. All these sheeps and wolves' clothing always have two things in common. Doctrinal defection on the one hand, doctrinal defection on the one hand, and a pull toward immoral behavior on the other. Doctrinal defection on the one hand, and a pull toward immoral behavior on the other. So the serpent to Eve, did God really say doctrinal defection, pull toward immorality? It looks good. It tastes good. Try it. You'll like it. So the rebels in Israel, where has that Moses gone? And is he really the voice of God among us? Doctrinal defection, a pull toward immorality. And so the people sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to play. 
So the false teachers in the apostolic age, which Jude is condemning here, they deny Christ. You see what he says? Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what does it mean to be ungodly in Jude's mind? It means to, to deny the gospel. That is to deny the uniqueness of the person of Jesus, to deny in one way or another the once-for-all atoning sufficiency of his sacrifice on the cross for our sins, his substitutionary atonement for us, to deny that in one way or another. And at the same time, you see a pull towards sensuality, sexual immorality of every kind, because Jude clearly implies homosexual practice as well as other forms of sexual immorality when he speaks of them uh, down in verse 7, pursuing unnatural desire. So, how does all of this speak to us today? And I just want to touch on uh, three things. Three quick examples of such defection. One that I've encountered very often in East Africa, baptism in the name of Jesus only. And I'd never heard of this, never heard of it. Just how, how, do you, how does someone baptize? Well, Jesus made it clear, didn't he? Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them how? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet we're teaching this one day, and this guy raises his hand during question time. He says, listen, what about the baptism in the name of Jesus only? I said, brother, what are you talking about? And so my translator had to explain what was going on there. There are false prophets uh, making big money, proclaiming a new form of baptism that will give you the true power of the Holy Spirit that came upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 because Peter says in that day to the Jews, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. And so when I asked for a biblical defense for what he was talking about, that's where he went. And so I said to him, so you're suggesting that just a month or so after the ascension of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, that the Apostle Peter, who had betrayed the Lord Jesus, had been restored to his fellowship and was now filled with the Spirit of God, was seeking to articulate a different kind of baptism than had been announced by his Lord at, in, in the very last days of his earthly ministry. Are, are you serious? And yeah, yeah, they were. And so we went back to Matthew 28, and I said, look, this is what Jesus said. Peter's not saying anything different. There's no such thing as what you're talking about. What you're talking about is a defection from the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. And stunningly enough, just a month or so ago, Debbie and I were having dinner with friends of ours in Houston, Texas, mainline Christian friends, and the lady happened to say, you know, I'm thinking about getting rebaptized." And I said, oh, really? Why would you do that? She said, well, I want to be baptized in the name of Jesus only. I said, what? I want to be baptized in the name of Jesus only so I can get the fullness of the Spirit. I said, whoa, whoa, don't do that. Please don't do that. And I went through my whole spiel with her. 
Why? Because that needs to be confronted, brothers. For it tears the whole church in Houston, Texas upside down. Whew. Another example, a little more universal, perhaps, more relevant to our more immediate context here. The fourth commandment, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. When the pandemic hit, what happened? Churches all shut down. Initially, virtually every church in the nation shut down. A couple of weeks went by, a month went by. And then suddenly you, you begin to hear that the church here and the church there, in particular, John MacArthur in Los Angeles, California, no less. His church is open and the man becomes something of a folk hero. By holding, by doing what? By holding public worship, live public worship, in a context where the civil authorities want churches to be closed. I know churches in Houston, Texas, that still have not opened for live public worship to this day. And I salute your pastors and your leadership for opening as quickly as I understand that you did. But I honestly believe that this pandemic and those kinds of things that have derived from it are a warning shot to the church that these things are not matters to be treated lightly. All the happy talk that went down two years ago about, oh, well, we can all worship online and it'll be just as good. No, it's not. No, it's not. Oh, and we don't, it doesn't really matter whether we meet face-to-face -face or meet virtually. I have friends on Facebook. No, it's not the same, not the same, not the same. Just ask your teenage girl if Facebook works like face-to-face -face friendship. The, the kind of shaming and bullying, social media shaming and bullying that young girls are exposed to these days and that sometimes they engage in does not take place in a face-to-face -face environment. No, it takes place this way. Wake up, church. We are called to public worship. And the Westminster Confession, the Fourth Commandment, all push us in that direction. And there will never be, never be, never be any substitute for it. And then finally, finally, and even worse. And this is, there. yes, it's happening in certain parts of the nominal church. It's also happening globally and apart from the church. But that is a loss of, of the common grace notion of a binary understanding of the human species, that we're born either male or female. Jesus himself in Matthew 19, when he is asked to comment on divorce, begins this way. Have you not read how it was in the beginning that God did what? That God created them Two choices. Two choices. Now, I have a three-year-old darling, three-year-old little grandbaby girl. 
named Nye Marie, and we just love her to death. And we have a little pool in our backyard when she comes to see Pops and Blondie. She loves to go swimming, even if it's freezing cold. She wants to go swimming in the pool. And that's great. She can immerse herself. And Pops always makes sure the pool is clean and well-filtered when she comes. But just imagine now if I allowed her to swim in a polluted pool, in a filthy, dirty sewer. Now, grandparents, this, this is not going to impact us. Parents, it's impacting you. But kids, kids, your children are going to swim in it. A refusal to acknowledge something so fundamental and so basic as the God-given binary distinction, male and female. And listen to me, boys and girls. Listen to me, young people. Listen to me, young adults. If God, if you were born a man, it's because God wants you to be a man. And if you have struggles with your male identity, God wants you to overcome those struggles, to work through those struggles and be the, all the man he created you to be in the first place. And if God made you a woman, if he made you a girl, he made you, you're a girl because God wants you to be a girl. And he wants you to be a girl for his glory. All the girl you can be, the best woman you can be. And that's part of who you are. And don't let anybody rob it from you. And if you do not think that this is a fundamental challenge to the biblical worldview of the people of God in the 21st century, my friends, you are living in a blinkered reality. And so may the word of God come to us powerfully and free us so that we can be his people and face the realities that we're called to face and contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Hold that line. Hold that line. And so let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his atoning sacrifice, his substitutionary work on our behalf, that while we were yet sinners, and yes, we are sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if you're here today and you've never said yes to the claims of Christ, may the Holy Spirit so work in your heart that you'll find one of these pastors today and ask them, hey, man, tell me more about this. I, I need help. I don't know if there's a God. I don't know if that, but I need help. And I'm hoping that Jesus can make a difference. And he'll, he'll change your life. And Father, for the rest of us, give us the grace, the strength, and the power, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. response to the word of God, let us stand and affirm that word as we say together the Philippian Creed. Christian believers, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself.
humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on. 